Yom Kippur, and then of course the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, but if you are watching us on Facebook or on YouTube, and you need translation, especially in Spanish or Portuguese or the Thai language, then please um, join us on Zoom, and we have those translations ready for you. We have wonderful people serving us in that capacity. But back to our subject today, which is Yom Kippur, um, which is a very um, important holiday next week in Israel. Um, we have no other than my colleague, um, David Parsons. He's uh, one of the vice presidents here at the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem. He's also the international spokesperson for us. He's overseeing all our media work, our teachings, and so much forth. Um, he's also um, 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 a lawyer by background, um, a very smart guy, and uh, really an expert on biblical um, uh, and Israel um, issues here in the Middle East. So we are very excited to have you, David, joining us. Um, thank you so much once again. You are usually the one that's hosting most of these webinars for us. It's been such a blessing to have you. And we're looking forward um, to, see, to hear this wonderful message about Yom Kippur today. So David, I will hand it over to you. And thank you for joining us and taking time for this. Yes. Thank you, David. Uh, it is a joy to be here. Thank you for that kind introduction. And uh, I really want to thank everyone uh, here on the uh, webinar platform and over on Facebook Live and YouTube channel for joining us. Uh, it is my uh, privilege and my challenge today to talk about Yom Kippur. We are in the midst of the days of all which started uh, last week. Uh, our colleague, uh, Moimir Kalos, uh, started off talking about Rosh Hashanah and how it's the day of trumpets, the blast of the shofar sounds to uh, awaken and warn the soul and awaken it that uh, in a few days you're going to stand before the Lord and give account. And this is what uh, Yom Kippur is all about, this awesome day when you, the, the people, the nation of Israel would stand before the Lord and uh, God would judge uh, how they were doing. And the tradition is that it also set the, turn to the, um, set the tone for the year ahead. But uh, whether the Lord had forgiven their sins or not, and we want to go into this, but I want to first read as we look into the subject of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, uh, from Hebrews chapter 7, starting with verse 23. Of course, the writer of Hebrews goes into um, much detail and discussion of comparing uh, the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that was cut by God with the mediator Moses versus the, uh, the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. And uh, we're starting with uh, Hebrews 7, verse 23, where uh, he's talking about the priests under the uh, Mosaic Covenant. There were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, meaning Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Moses was an intercessor, and Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us, those who trust in him. 
for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy harmless undefiled this is not talking about us this is talking about our high priest jesus holy harmless undefiled separate from sinners he's separate from us we have to acknowledge that he was a man like you and i but without sin and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's for this he did once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness but the word of the oath, meaning uh, the, from the book of Psalms, the Lord has sworn thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, by that sworn oath, uh, by the word of the oath, which came after the law in the book of Psalms, he appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Praise the Lord for his word. I'm going to now... Uh, share my screen to, so that we can all follow along with some notes I've prepared. And uh, let me see where uh, it should be here. Hold on one second. I go like that and then back over to our program and share the screen again. It should show up. Here we are. Okay, can we see this? All right, we've read this scripture from the book of Hebrews. And when we consider the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, or the day of covering, uh, it speaks foremost about the mercy seat, which was in the, the Ark of the Covenant, which kept the testimony of what happened in the wilderness, the tablets uh, with the Ten Commandments, the um, a pot with some manna in it and the, uh, the uh, almond rod that budded. These were in the Ark of the Testimony and it had a lid, which was a mercy seat with these seraphim up above it. And the high priest would go on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle the blood of goat on the mercy seat. And so uh, this, this word for atonement Kaport, uh, it, it refers to the mercy seat itself, the covering of the ark, or to atone, to purge or cover, and then cover our sins. And it's interesting, uh, the rabbis tell us that it's important to know where a, a word, the, at least the, the Hebrew root of a word, where it first appears in Scripture. And you first find this in the story of the flood in Genesis 7, when uh, Noah is told to build a ship and to seal it with pitch. And the word there is kafar, the same root word as kapor. And believe me, they were in a boat and they would have sunk and perished if they had not sealed it inside and out with this pitch, which made it waterproof. And it's quite interesting, the same word or concept, even though it's in Greek, is in all the way in the end of the Bible. It's in the start in Genesis, all the way end in Revelation, where it says the judgments of God cannot begin until the angel has come and sealed the saints, the redeemed, in their foreheads. So there's a certain seal of atonement. Uh, and uh, these are what we're dealing with. Now, the, the scriptures, you, you'll find um, uh, all the uh, biblical festivals, Shabbat and, 
and from Passover, Shavuot, to all these different feasts, right up through the fall feast, Rosh Hashanah, the blowing of the trumpet, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. You'll find them all in Leviticus 23, chapter 23, and in verses 26 through 32, has a short version of what is required on this Day of Atonement. And the, I think the main thing that really stands out, that makes it stands out, it says you, you are to afflict your soul and those who do not afflict it you will be cut off from the house of Israel and and it's quite interesting even today in Israel there you know there's a lot of secular people have the country is secular uh, and even some of them you know very uh, sinful shall we say as we all are but uh, really turning from God's ways and standards but on Yom Kippur the vast majority of Jews, some surveys have it around 85 to 90% of all Israeli Jews observe Yom Kippur in, in some measure, uh, even uh, fasting. Uh, so, you know, they take this uh, command to afflict your soul to mean fasting. It means to humble and break yourself, to lower yourself, chasten yourself, to weaken your own will, admit your wrongs and your need for forgiveness. Uh, and, um, you know, so this is an important uh, moment in the year, each calendar uh, year where you're going to appear before the Lord as a people, as a nation, uh, and, and you have to humble yourself before God. Uh, Leviticus 20, Leviticus 16 contains a lot more detail about the duties of the high priest on Yom Kippur. So it's one thing for all the people to afflict their souls, but while they're doing that, the high priest had uh, certain duties that he must perform and involves the goat, the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat, laying his hands on it. There's a lot that uh, I want to go into some other things about Yom Kippur, but these were very important. In temple times, there were certain things happening with the high priest that uh, there was a Shekinah um, presence of God at the temple that sometimes it would show up in unique ways on Yom Kippur, such as a certain uh, red uh, scarlet cloth that would turn white uh, in the presence of the Lord, and the people knew that that uh, they were, you know, were forgiven for their sins. And this is from one of the prophets, uh, I think Isaiah, that uh, let us come and reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. But uh, you know, there was one sure sign whether you know the the people were were uh, in right standing with god and this had to do with the duties of the high priest where he had to go it was the only time he could go into the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant was and he had to do it twice first for himself and his family to see if he or his family had sinned if uh, if he was with sin, wasn't right before the Lord, then he would die in the presence of the Lord. So they would have a rope uh, tied around his waist. No one else could go in there and pull his body out. You didn't want a dead body decaying in there. Uh, and he had bells on the bottom of his garment 
his priest, high priestly garment that were, uh, the bells were ringing and jingling as he moved around. If he stopped moving, then you had to be worried and you'd have to start pulling on the rope because maybe he fell over and died before the Lord. But if he was able to go in and make that first sacrifice for him and his family and he passed muster, then he comes out and does some other rituals and gets the more blood of the goat ready. And he goes in a second time on behalf of the people. And, uh, and you know, this was a test whether he had sinned and then he uh, comes back out and went back in for the people. He had to place uh, incense from the, uh, on, the, on the censer uh, um, and that was part of his duties or he would die if he didn't do all this right. And then he had to sprinkle the blood seven times on the mercy seat. Some uh, Messianic Jewish scholars say he did it in the, in the form of a cross. He'd sprinkle blood this way and then sideways forming a, a cross on the mercy seat. And why test the high priest in this way? Well, one reason Aaron had made the golden calf and even his sons had offered strange fire. So, you know, they were selected for this important position, but here they had done some wrong things and whoever needed to go in there had to have the fear of God and had to have their lives right before him. And it was actually God's mercy even to allow the high priest into his presence, even the first time. But you know, God was trying to communicate to the people that they'd humble themselves and uh, seek forgiveness for their sins, that he was a merciful God. Uh, Yom Kippur every year is a reminder of our sin, but also of the mercy and the grace of God over our lives. Now, I find it very interesting that Moses ascended the mountain twice for 40 days to stand before the Lord to receive the law. And there seems to be a, a parallel that what happened with Moses going up on the mountain, not once but twice, has a parallel with the duties of the high priest on Yom Kippur. The first time is uh, written about in Exodus 24 through 31, where he goes up for 40 days and he passes the test, but the people grew impatient and wound up in rebellion, worshiping the golden calf. Um, and so in Exodus 34, Moses has to go up again a second time to atone for the people's sin, to make intercession for them. And uh, he once more stayed up there for 40 days. This time the people were patient. He came down with that second set of tablets so that it could, uh, but they could not look upon the glory uh, that was shining forth from Moses. So Moses placed a veil over his face. And what's very interesting about all this is that Jewish tradition holds that this occurred on Yom Kippur, that he went up on the mountain on uh, the month of Elul, the first day of the month of Elul, and that he came down 40 days later on the 10th of Tishrei, the month of Tishrei, which is the day of Yom Kippur. And as we read some of this from uh, the Torah, from the book of Exodus 32, uh, it, and now it came to pass on the day that Moses said to the people, uh, you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. See that word atonement. Kapar. 
But then Moses returned to the Lord and said, All these people have committed a great sin and made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whomever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. You see this word atonement. He's really interceding. You see this mention of uh, the book of the Lord or the book of life. It's also mentioned several times in the New Testament. It's a big uh, part of Jewish tradition and thinking has biblical basis that uh, on Yom Kippur, the judgment, part of the verdict or judgment of God over our lives is that he sets what's ahead for the next year in, in Christian thinking. Uh, your name is written in the book of life and whatever the next year brings, it's from God and such. But uh, these are, are Jewish concepts that have been uh, brought forward into the New Testament in some uh, format. Um, and on the uh, again, on the Hebrew calendar, the month of the law is a month of repentance. I think uh, Moimir mentioned this last week that it just doesn't start with Rosh Hashanah uh, and, and the day of trumpets, that they're already in a repentant mode as they approach the high holy days and the days of all between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And that Tishrei is the holiest month of the year, the seventh month. Uh, and this is when the fall, the high holy days uh, occur. And uh, again, Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, made atonement or intercession for the children of Israel, received the new tablets of the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and it's 40 days between the first of the law and the 10th of Tishrei, the Day of Atonement. And it says here, it's quite interesting. So it was, now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses's hand when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. So when Aaron, all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. And, and so he puts a veil over his face. And uh, in the New Testament, it says, since that time, there's been a veil uh, on, uh, on the Jewish people in understanding even their own scriptures. And I believe Moses comes one day and helps take off the veil. Amen. Uh, Yom Kippur in the New Testament. I think it's important for us as Christians to have a good, solid, balanced view of this day. And really for me, I've always questioned, uh, you know, the, the question that comes up at Yom Kippur is, why did Jesus die at Passover and not Yom Kippur? And what is the difference in symbolism of these, of each? And I think the standard answer is that Passover was a time of personal, is, it has the meaning of personal salvation, while Yom Kippur is about Israel's national salvation. And I think there's some truth in that, but I think there's a lot more complexity to both festivals and, and understanding uh, them. But I, and, and we'll go into this a, a little more here, how the New Testament handles that. Um, and what is the prophetic significance of Yom Kippur? What does it portray? I believe it has a lot to portray about his second coming. And so we'll spend most of our time now talking about these questions. The book of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, it presents Yom Kippur 
uh, again, as a yearly reminder of sin that was made a core part of God's covenant uh, given through Moses. Uh, but the new covenant, the book of Hebrews says, is built on better promises because it has a better mediator. The book of Hebrews spends much time comparing Jesus as our eternal high priest with uh, Aaron and, and the high priests of uh, the Mosaic order. But you also have Jesus presented as the mediator of the new covenant, the one that God chose to, to mediate, to receive the promises and to seal the covenant with God on behalf of the people. Uh, whereas, you know, Moses uh, received the covenant. He was the mediator of the covenant that God established with Israel at Sinai. Uh, but even in the book of Hebrews, you know, some uh, Jewish scholars would say, well, look, it was also mediated by angels. And the book of Hebrews starts out, says, well, that's all good and fine, but to which angel did God say thou art a priest forever? And which angel received this promise or that promise as the very son of God? And it singles out Jesus as, as preeminent over all creation and eternal high priest of a, uh, a, a, better uh, a better covenant based on better promises, a better surety because it's eternal. A covenant requires a death, and God also requires a blood sacrifice, meaning someone has to die, and through the shedding of that blood, God is able to forgive sins. Jesus was tested by his suffering and death, and therefore qualified to be our eternal high priest. In a sense, Jesus had that moment like the high priest on Yom Kippur, where he was went and was tested inside the holy place, inside before the presence of the Lord in the Holy of Holies. He came out, he passed muster, and he comes out. And uh, I think this is what he wanted, wanted to talk about. It was through his suffering and death that Jesus was perfected by his obedience and going to the cross. And when he reappeared in the resurrection, he was without sin and made judge over all men. And it was when he sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat in heaven and by faith in that act, our sins are forgiven. So Jesus qualified even in his death, uh, his suffering and his death in not only sealing the new covenant, but also in prophetically fulfilling that part of the uh, this uh, festival of Yom Kippur, the, this day of uh, atonement, by sprinkling, he had qualified as the our high priest, and therefore he went and sprinkled his own blood on the mercy seat in heaven. I think it's important to know it's what the blood speaks in heaven that is uh, important over our lives. And we'll read some of this, Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 11 who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, 
of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. It was that whole suffering and passion of, of Christ in that last week, the rejection, the bloodshed, the, the uh, taking of stripes, plucking the beard, the way he was punched, saying not a word and going all the way to the cross that qualified him. Uh, he was tested by God in that moment and proved to be high priest worthy and then that blood he himself sprinkled it on the mercy seat to atone for our sins uh, luke 13 he's talking to some pharisees and some of them said you better get out of here herod wants to kill you and he said go tell that fox i think that's kind of a derogatory term uh, in those days, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. It's a certain word that he used there. It's not resurrected, but perfected. Amen. Our high perfect priest. Uh, Hebrews 7, 27, that says, Jesus does not need today. We read this at the start. As, uh, as the high priest under the Mosaic Covenant, they had to, every year on Yom Kippur, offer sacrifice. Every day they had sacrifices to offer for their own sins and for the people. But Jesus did it once and for all when he offered up himself. And, and again, it's very important to note that the blood of Jesus speaks in heaven for your life and my life. I know, you know, people plead the blood of Jesus over their houses, their families, their cars, their this or that, and, you know, uh, each to their faith, you can say, but for me, the most important thing is what the blood of Jesus speaks to God, the Father in heaven. And in Hebrews 12, 24, says, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaks better things than that of Abel. Of course, Abel's blood spoke forth from uh, the earth and uh, it was very troubling to the Lord. He comes to Cain and says, uh, where's your brother? Okay, Yom Kippur. I think, I think there's something about Yom Kippur that is very much uh, like when God came looking for Adam and Eve and he found him in fig leaves. They still, they were naked and ashamed, but they still had their shame because they had a wrong covering over them. Uh, and, uh, but Yom Kippur is this day where you're gonna to have to appear before the Lord and you're either naked and ashamed or something there is to cover your sin. And of course the fig leaves were replaced by an animal sacrifice, meaning something had to die to atone for their sin. And then, you know, even Cain, after he slew Abel, God came looking and there was a day where uh, Cain had to give an account and stand before the Lord. Uh, Yom Kippur is a reminder that we shall all stand before the Lord. Even those of us in Christ will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of what we've done in the body. But the God's covenant with Noah says every man will go, God says, I will require a reckoning of every life. This is Genesis 9. And I think Yom Kippur is a reminder. And so much of the world today denies it, denies there's a God, and therefore denies that you will give an account for your life. But every one of us will stand before God one day and will be either naked and ashamed or uh, clothed in righteousness that he provides 
This is what our teaching is about today, about Yom Kippur, this annual reminder of that very core principle in the Bible that we all are morally accountable to our maker. Uh, there, you can find Yom Kippur in many other references in the New Testament. Uh, for instance, in Revelation chapter 6 and 8 and 11, you have certain allusions to Yom Kippur, such as the incense being placed on the censer, and it's the prayers of the saints rising, and the ark of uh, God is seen in the temple up in heaven. Uh, also, you have many uh, references, as I said, to the book of life in the New Testament. So, you know, Yom Kippur is, is affirmed in so many ways and aspects in the New Testament, but is also used, uh, you know, to, uh, to help us understand the far greater salvation and the, the eternal atonement we have through the blood of Christ. But I want to spend uh, the rest of our time talking about uh, a way that you know many people might not understand it, but the way Yom Kippur shows up in a certain parable of Jesus, the parable of the wedding feast. And this is uh, told by Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And it also basically appears um, in uh, the parable of the great banquet in Luke uh, chapter 14, the first uh, from verses 7 through, I guess, around 14. Um, we'll, we'll look at that. And then from around 14 or 15 on through 24, there's the parable of the great banquet. Uh, but they, they are very parallel, these two stories from Matthew and Luke. And, and uh, you'll understand more why as we go through it. And in New Testament times, a, a wedding was a very sacred and joyous thing. And some uh, wedding feasts even lasted up to uh, more than a week. And when Jesus told this parable, many people understand the imagery he was drawing, what he was trying to create. Uh, because he used the ex example of a Jewish wedding, specifically a seudat nesuin, as the setting of the story. That in for in New uh, New Testament times, first century times, you know, if you're going to have a wedding, especially if you're a wealthy man or whatever, uh, in the parable of the wedding feast, it's a king that's holding it. Uh, you are expected to. Um, uh, throw a big uh, feast for the bride and groom, for your family. And those who are invited, it's quite interesting. It's actually considered a mitzvah to attend. It's a good deed that's kept in, you know, the record is kept in heaven. It's a mitzvah, a good deed to attend and help the bride and groom celebrate with joy. And so, you know, as we go through this parable, we find that some people didn't want to attend. They had all kinds of excuses, other things to do, and, and they were breaking a mitzvah. And uh, so as the listeners to the story in Jesus's day would have been a little shocked by this. But in Matthew 22, we have a certain king who is arranging a marriage for his son, the prince. And uh, he's invited the usual VIP list, the high and mighty, 
but they all had better things to do. Some said, I got to run my business. Others, I got uh, family to attend to, da, 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 da. And uh, it says that even some of them, they, they said, we got, you know, bigger fish to fry, other things to do. But some of them, they took the servants who had come to bring the invitations and they beat them up and even killed the king's servants. And the king was angry with them. And he sent out more servants to invite people. And uh, in, in uh, the Luke version of the great banquet, it says that he sent them out to the highways and hedges. We say highways and byways, but this was the, I guess, the New King James way of saying it, the King James or New King James way of saying it, the highways and hedges. And it even says, um, I believe in Luke, uh, that that they invited everyone, even uh, both the good and the bad. It's quite interesting. I mean, this invitation to come to the wedding feast of the Lamb, uh, to come to the altar, to come to the foot of the cross, come to Jesus. It has been here for centuries, and it's whosoever will may come. And this parable, in a way, really, uh, you know, is a picture of the gospel. Uh, going out to all nations and peoples, not just the rich and the rulers and and the the, the beautiful people and whatever, but to everyone, even even the sinners. You're invited if you'll humble yourself before the Lord. Um, in Luke chapter 14, uh, it's presented as a great banquet, but I think we can presume that it's a wedding feast because. The, the earlier verses from Luke 7 onward to around 14 or so, Jesus is talking about, uh, he cautions us that when you get invited to a wedding feast, don't sit on the front row. Don't sit at the head table right near the king and the bride and groom because someone of more honor might come and you'll get bumped and everyone, no one else will want to move from their seats and you'll have to go to the end of the line. And so he says, you take a lowly seat at wedding feasts and, and be content with that. And if you do have honor, someone's going to see you and maybe move you up a few places and then you'll get honor in just being moved up. And there's several verses there that talk about this over and over uh, about uh, how you approach these wedding feasts. And again, it's a mitzvah to attend these wedding feasts. And so what follows that, the parable of the great banquet, I believe it's talking about a wedding feast. And uh, because there's so many pair similarities between the uh, Matthew 22, the, the, the parable of the wedding feast, and Luke 14, the great banquet parable, that it's basically the same story. And in Luke, it says the high and mighty, uh, in Matthew, the they... Um, they said, I, you know, I'm busy with my business. I'm kind of, you know, I got so, got to take my kids to soccer practice, things like this. Uh, but in, in Luke, uh, it says they made all sorts of excuses for why they could, could not attend. They, you know, they were really piling on these excuses. Um, and that's going to be important in a moment as we look further at this parable. Because in Matthew 22, um, the parable of the wedding feast, there's an extra scene that uh, isn't contained in Luke 14, but I think it's very important. 
and uh, we really need to pay heed to it, okay? They've, uh, he sent out the first set of servants, some of them got killed, people turning down the invites, so they go to the highways and hedges and say, anyone, can, whomsoever will, you come to this wedding feast. I'm having a wedding feast to honor my son. And so it says the place was packed and, and all these lowly people, they come. But right before the wedding ceremonies and the whole festivities are about to start, the king comes into the room, like a waiting room, uh, one more time right before it starts and right before his son shows up. Uh, and 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 he inspects all the guests to make sure they are clothed properly for this wedding. That this is a big deal to him. He wants to make sure you you are you're in your best duds this day. But he sees one man who did not have on a wedding garment, and the guy it says he the. Uh, the king asks him, why don't you have on a wedding garment? And it says he was silent. He offered no excuse. He shows up, he accepted the invitation, but he's standing there without a wedding garment on. And the king is angry and he orders that the man be bound and thrown into outer darkness. Here it's one single man but I think a lot of uh, Bible commentators agree that he's a, he's a symbol. He's a, a figure representing many who uh, we all need to place ourselves in this spot and say, is that me? And uh, as we look into this, uh, you understand there's no excuse, no excuse for not having your wedding garments on once you understand the gospel and understand this. And, to understand it a, a little deeper, we have to first uh, get a handle that the fall festivals, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles, they're united just as the spring festivals from Passover to uh, Pentecost, uh, Pesach to Shavuot, they're all tied together. There's several other festivals in there, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Firstfruits, uh, the counting of the Omer, they're all tied together by the counting of the Omer, and it's actually one, in a sense, one festival, and they all had to do with the first coming of Jesus. There were prophetic purposes hidden in them that had to do with the first coming of Jesus and his atoning for sin through his death, burial, and then his resurrection. And uh, But the fall festivals, they're tied together. Uh, you know when the Feast of Tabernacles is because at Rosh Hashanah, the new moon, the shofar sounds, and you know 10 days later is Yom Kippur, five days later is Feast of Tabernacles, and unless you observe it all properly, as you go into the Feast of Tabernacles, if you haven't observed these earlier ones, you're really not doing it right. We observe the Feast of Tabernacles, but I think it's become very, very important for us all to understand there's something about the process of these festivals that are all tied together and to really come to the feast in the proper heart and mindset you, you need to go through this introspection process as well. And they, these fall festivals, they're all about the second coming of Jesus. Are you ready for that? Because they speak prophetically of the coronation of Jesus as king 
and the wedding feast of the Lamb. And this moment of inspection of the wedding garment, it is very important, it is very instructive that the king found one person. He accepted the invite, but he showed up at the wedding without his garments on. And the parable assumes that the listener is familiar with the ancient Oriental custom that the host of a, a, a royal feast, a wedding, especially if you're rich or wealthy or royalty or whatever, you had to provide garments for guests who really didn't, couldn't dress to the nines like you were expecting. Not everyone can afford a, a, a tuxedo and a, and a ballroom gown and such. And uh, if you were going to invite people, if you're a wealthy man or a king and you were going to invite people to your son, the prince getting married, uh, or a wealthy man, his son getting married, you, you usually had a whole wardrobe of garments at the ready that if someone did not show up properly, you would dress them. Every king, and every wealthy man in ancient times here in the Middle East, it was a, in, in Orient, they had wardrobes filled with fancy garments. Uh, I think today we, we would call them kaftans, these flowing outer robes that you could even put over if you had showed up in, in shorts and a tank top or something very improper. You could still go in and select something from his wardrobe and put it on. And it was a, a, you know, these kings and wealthy people, it was an investment. Part of their wealth was the, the wardrobes that they had. It showed their glory and their splendor because some of these things, the silk and other fine linens and the things they were decorated with and the different dyes and all, it showed wealth. And it was an investment just as gold and other things. We find it, say, in Genesis 45, 22, when Joseph revealed himself to his brother and they're having this big, you know, uh, get together again and weeping on each each other's soldiers, shoulders. It says Joseph gave all his brothers garments of gifts, but he gave three garments to Benjamin. Samson, when he's uh, holding this challenge with, uh, to the riddle uh, to the Philistines, he offers 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. Naaman, the, the Syrian uh, general, uh, he promised 10 garments and gold and silver to the prophet Elijah could be healed. And King Jehu gives vestments from his wardrobe in the temple of Baal. It's a shame it's the temple of Baal, but it shows that this, this uh, Israelite king had a whole wardrobe of vestments that he offered to people when they came before his presence. Even if you were just going to hold an audience before the king, you could not come in in shorts and sandals. You had to be dressed properly. And if you did not have the proper dress, he had a whole wardrobe that you could go in there and put it on. And uh, you find it in the book of Esther where, you know, uh, the question is, you know, what are we going to do for the man who really does this big, big favor for the king? And Haman says, dress him in royal robes, some of the king's best garments. And just uh, two chapters later, guess who shows up? It's Mordecai dressed in royal apparel and not Haman. But it shows over and over again, we see this ancient tradition that the wealthy and, and, and royalty had these wardrobes of, of uh, vestments and garments and such. And if you're gonna have a wedding feast, 
no one had any excuse, even if you showed up in, in Bermuda shorts and a, a t-shirt, you could still throw on one of these uh, caftans over it and no one would know the difference. You'd look nice and posh and, yeah. And even today at, at very, um, uh, you know, posh high-end country clubs and restaurants, you have these strict uh, dress codes where, you know, there, there's some restaurants that you have to wear a white dinner jacket. And if you show up without it, you're probably going to get turned away unless you're one of the preferred customers there. And then they'll, they have a little closet in the back and hopefully you can find one that sort of fits you. Um, you know, I'm a 40, I think a 48 long and hopefully they'd have one to fit me. Jurgen uh, Bueller, our president was just telling me how uh, he was speaking in the LA area, Los Angeles area a couple years ago. Uh, as a guest of um, um, Jack Hayford. And uh, Jack Hayford uh, has him invited to speak at this very nice, exclusive Hollywood country club uh, to speak to some, you know, uh, a high-end clientele, they're believers or whatever, but they go to this country club about Israel and about what we do in, in Israel. Uh, and uh, the reason Jack had access to it, it wasn't that, you know, he could pay you a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars a year. It's that the owner of the club had gotten saved under Jack's preaching and had made Jack an ordinary, uh, an honorary member. Jack didn't have to pay or whatever, but no one told Jurgen, and I think Vesna was with him, and I think even Yuha, and they were in their blue jeans. And they show up, and Jurgen's the guest speaker and whatever, and they show up at this country club, and they won't let him in because they have blue jeans. And when uh, Jack Hayford arrives and finds out, they take him inside and find some other pants for them to wear, uh, in this country club, and they're able to speak to this group. So even today, this sort of tradition survives. And in the parable of the wedding feast, it, would, it was a gross insult, a great insult to the king to refuse to wear one of the garments that he had provided to the guests. The man who was caught wearing his own clothes, his old clothes, learned what offenses was as he was forcefully removed from the celebration. And what we have to understand here is that this man who offered no excuse, who stood silently when the king came in to expect, he had no excuse because he could have easily gone and picked in a garment, but he was someone who really did not care he had accepted this invitation, but he was not really prepared to stand before his king because he had not considered his garments. And all through the New Testament, you have this notion, even in the, the, the motif of the thief in the night, Jesus uses it, Peter uses it. It's in the, uh, in the book of Revelation over and over again. It says, you know, behold, I come as a thief in the night and you better be ready lest you be naked and ashamed and you're, you're not uh, wearing the right garments. That's a sort of a whole different teaching about how a night watchman, uh, if, if you caught them asleep, 
you would set their fire, their clothing on fire and then walk them through town the next day. And if people saw the night watchman with their clothes burned, they knew he had fallen asleep on the job and endangered everyone. And so all through the New Testament, there's this notion that you got to keep your garments clean. You got to be aware uh, that it's not our righteousness, it's that provided by Jesus, and you better appreciate it and make sure you're not sore or stained that you've been through this process of examining your heart, humbling yourself before the Lord, just as Israel was commanded to do before Yom Kippur. And this was Jesus's way of teaching the inadequacy of our own self-righteousness. From the very beginning, God has provided a covering for our sin. Adam and Eve tried to cover their shame with fig leaves, but God replaced them with skins of animal, which when a life had been sacrificed. To insist on covering our shames ourselves is to be clad in filthy rags, as it says in Isaiah 64. In the book of Revelation, we see those in heaven wearing white robes, and we learn that the whiteness of the robes is due to their being washed in the blood of the Lamb. We trust in God's righteousness and not our own. Uh, Philippians 3, 9 says, not having a righteousness of our own, but that which is in Christ Jesus. And to the church in Ephesians 5, 27, to the church it is given that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Just as the king provided wedding garments for his guests, God provides salvation for mankind. Our wedding garment is the righteousness of Christ. And unless we have it on, we will not be allowed into the wedding feast. Uh, I found the comments of Charles Spurgeon on this uh, very, very enlightening. Uh, he again mentions it's the custom in the East for a king to provide robes for his guests. Uh, the wedding garment was a sign of the king's grace, freely given and freely received. And wearing it is a sign of respect for the king and for his son. You do not respect the king and you do not respect his son if you show up at the wedding feast without even one of his own garments on. It's free. It's offered to you free. You must not even care if you don't put it on. And why was the man that's speechless? Uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon says, making excuses um, is, is the easiest game in town. But here, there was nothing to be said. And now, as we start concluding here, I'll read from Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and the sound of many thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Bible speaks of the bride, of the guests of the, uh, the bridegroom and such. We all got to make sure our garments are proper before the Lord. At Rosh Hashanah, which started last week, the shofar was sounded to awaken our souls to a time of awe and introspection because we are about to stand before the Lord. 
on Yom Kippur, the verdict is delivered, whether we are to be found naked and ashamed or worthy of his grace. If you pass muster, it is time to rejoice in your salvation and join the wedding feast, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. We are in time, a time of preparation before the wedding feast. This Yom Kippur, let's make sure we have clothed ourselves with the righteous garments he has provided through Jesus, our high priest, and his very blood already sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven for us. Amen and amen. I'll stop the share there. And uh, David, yes. Amen. Thank you so much, um, David, for this wonderful teaching about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Um, is truly something that we need to ponder and rethink and revisit all the time. Jesus is our high priest. And if you're watching us, please remember, you can revisit this wonderful teaching on our YouTube channel, um, ITJ Webinars, and you can review this again and get and review all these wonderful aspects of this day of Yom Kippur. Um, but I do want to remind everybody and also invite everybody that our with us today to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with us. That is the next feast after Yom Kippur. For the last 40 years, the ICJ have been hosting and celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. We used to have um, thousands of pilgrims coming up and joining us in Jerusalem. But the last two, uh, one here last year, it was not possible to have physical feast, but we had a wonderful virtual feast. And this year we're planning once again a virtual Feast of Tabernacles. I'm expecting over 8,000 um, uh, Christians to join us from over 90 nations to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And I want to invite you, if you want to know more, on the register, just go to our website, icj.org, or just follow this um, link that I have here on the um, chat. And it's going to be very exciting. Um, we're going to be streaming from different places in Israel, from Mount Carmel, from the Sea of Galilee, from Qumran, of course, from Jerusalem, even from the southern steps of the Second Temple period. We will have a wonderful event, bring up the nations. Um, you can also see here as we are sharing the different days. Um, David, since we have a little bit of time, do you want to maybe say something about the Feast of Tabernacles, what content, all those videos on demand that we have? I've heard we have almost 100 videos on demand, seminars, um, some of the speakers, we're going to have Messianic um, worship, Messianic local pastors joining us. Want to give us a little review since you're the one that are yes. reviewing all the content, and yes. I know you're so excited for this Feast of Tabernacles. We are, but if you want to register again, ICJ.org. Um, David, maybe you can uh, say a couple of words also about this wonderful event we're going to have. Yeah, yeah, I, I've, I've been uh, reviewing all the uh, seminar teachings that have been coming in and also the, some of the messages that are being sent from abroad, some of our speakers who aren't able to make it here to Israel. And there's a lot of rich teaching in there uh, and a wide variety from all over the world. And I think one of the things that's really impressive this year is you know, we have strong speakers from all continents and all directions. And I think of Asia Pacific, we have Manusa Kolebosu from Fiji. We have uh, Philip uh, Mentofa from uh, Indonesia. 
uh, we just picked up someone else from Indonesia who's Chinese uh, speaker. Uh, we have Sam, Samuel Lowe, uh, I think that's him, and uh, Georgiana Dorai. Um, uh, you know, so if you're from that area, uh, this uh, evangelist Tim Hall from Australia, if you're from that area, you're going to have guys you've heard of and some of your favorites from there. And, you, you, you know, you look west or east or north or south, we have uh, four or five good uh, from Russia, and they'll be speaking in Russian. Uh, Sergei Sidlovsky and uh, Boris Grishenko and uh, several others that uh, uh, trying to remember and then um, in Spanish and Portuguese there's like six or eight different speakers from all over uh, the Latino uh, Christian world in Spanish and, and several more in Portuguese and in French and whatever so it's not only all in English we'll have uh, probably 80-some seminars available in English. And then uh, in some of these other languages, we'll have uh, maybe a dozen or more in some of those languages in, uh, that, uh, you know, there's something for everyone. In the daily shows, there'll be translation there as well. So uh, we live translation, I think, into 12 languages. But, um, and we have good speakers from Israel. We have Daniel Yahab, we have uh, Wayne Hilston, um, uh, just, uh, you know, quite a few from here in the land, Sammy Smajda with uh, Sarel Tours um, and uh, Israel Pakhtar. Some people may be familiar with some of these because we've used them in, in quite a few capacities in recent years. Um, and then uh, you know, Malcolm Hedding will be there, Angus Bucken. We're uh, hoping to hear from Lou Engel and uh, several others. The, the list is quite large. You can see uh, on this graphic uh, that we're sharing. Of all, you know, these are just some of the speakers that we have. And it's on the feast theme uh, of uh, a lot of good teachings on the feast theme of Days of Elijah, Current Affairs, Next Generation. There's gonna be about 25 that are aimed at the next generation. And a lot of those are in different languages as well. So it's, you know, the feast theme uh, from Malachi, uh, the spirit of Elijah coming, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, children to the fathers. We're trying to reach out to the next generation specifically in this feast. And there's some of the seminar topics that uh, we'll have. Amen. Yeah. So that's going to be, we are, are very excited about this wonderful feast of tabernacles um, called the days of Elijah. It's pretty appropriate for our time. And again, you know, if you want to register, just go to icj.org. Um, of course, this is a lot of content that you will get. Um, and it will not just be available for the week of the Feast of Tabernacles, which will be from the 20th to the 27th, but you will have three months uh, in the basic package time to go through these um, wonderful seminars. If you even upgrade your package a little bit, you can have nine months um, uh, time to um, go through all this content that we can have available for you. We really believe this will be a blessing for you. So we wanna encourage you to sign up and tell others about this wonderful event and be part of the nations that are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And um, we also have, we could also say, David, we have a wonderful new platform for those that have been with us last year. We have an upgraded platform. I think it's gonna be much easier, much nicer. Um, to watch and you can even interact with other um, pilgrims that are 
um, watching and joining us together. So um, it's going to be quite a nice experience. And of course, if you're not speaking uh, English as a mother language, don't worry about that. As David said, we will have at least 12 different other languages um, that covers most of the world, really. So there's a very good chance we might have your language available for you. And of course, we are streaming from Israel from the 20th to the 27th and um, two hours every day um, from four to six Israel time. And they will be available, of course, if you're not a, in that time slot to watch them again in your time slot. So um, there's no um, reason for you if you're not to join and don't miss out. This is very exciting. Um, anything else you want to um, add, David, before we close and make a comment about our next webinar? Mm. Um, no, that's it. That's good. I, I think know. we had a good webinar today. Thank you so much once again, David. And just please note, we can have a little break with the ICJ Thursday webinars um, until the 4th of November. That will be our next one. Just due to the high holidays and of the Feast of Celebration that we're going to have. But we will remind you, if you have signed up to our newsletter, that on the 4th of November, we will start again with our ICJ webinars, the biblical and prophetic teachings. So stay tuned in us, follow us in our newsletter on our website. And most of all, we hope to see you at the Feast of Tabernacles. Please join us. Thank you so much. Thank you, David, once again, for this wonderful teaching on Yom Kippur. Bless you all and Shalom. Have a wonderful day. Through the prophet Elijah, the Lord worked mighty miracles all across the land of Israel. This year at the Feast of Tabernacles, we want you to experience that same fire of the Holy Spirit as in the days of Elijah. Journey with us through seven days of exciting Sukkot events in Jerusalem and all around Israel. Join us live from Qumran on the shores of the Dead Sea, where the voices of the prophets still echo. From Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus' miracle working power was on display. And from Mount Carmel, where the fire of God rained down. You don't want to miss a minute of this year's feast. When you register online today, you'll get access to all seven live shows from around Israel and over 80 plus seminars from Bible teachers and experts around the world. You'll also be able to join us for global prayer and anointed worship from Israeli and international artists. I know the Lord has a special appointment with you at the Feast of Tabernacles this year. Register online today and we'll see you at the feast.